0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, who's been talking to Nathan Stovall of Standard & Poor's, and our guest here is Harriet Baldwin, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury. This week, we'll be talking about the pay of bank chief executives, also the latest moves in the UK to get more women into finance, and finally, a look forward at US banks and their second quarter earnings with that interview with S&P. First, though, to Chief Executive Pay, Laura, you've been looking at some of the latest exclusive data that's been crunched for us by Equilar. And there's been quite a lot of pay inflation again, certainly at the top ranks of the banks.
2: Yeah, I mean, we had seen some fairly muted pay rises in the previous years. If we go back to last year when we did the survey... The average pay across these 20 best paid international bank CEOs was only up 0.5%. This year we see their average pay rising 7.6%. So there really has been a big escalation in terms of the amount of pay increases that these guys are getting. And if you look at that compared to the amount that their banks are actually earning, we saw pay going up 7.6% and we saw earnings going up 4.2%. So certainly pay rises aren't just outstripping the pay rises in the previous series, they're also outstripping earnings rises.
1: And just to be clear on what we're talking about when we refer to pay, this is total remuneration salaries plus annual bonuses plus long-term incentives. Anything else?
2: Yes, yeah, so we first of all take their base pay, we add in the company pension contributions as well, any other kind of side benefits that they get. When it comes to their bonuses, we look at bonuses based on that year's performance rather than the bonuses which they actually get in that year, because often you'll have bankers who are actually getting bonuses this year in respect of the prior year performances. So we really try to screen that out and just look at the bonuses which they are granted based on this year's performance, even though they won't actually receive those bonuses for several years in most cases.
1: Okay. And then to come back from the discrepancy that you've noticed between the extent of the pay rises and underlying performance increases, you talked about earnings going up only 4.2%. What about other measures that may be relevant here? What about share prices? What about other metrics in terms of improvement at the banks?
2: Share prices are kind of a difficult one to gauge. I mean, we looked at it in the context of share prices, but it's so sensitive to where the share price actually started. And it's also influenced by so many other things. So if you look at earnings, you can say earnings are arguably influenced by the CEOs of the banks. Bank share prices tend to move when there are interest rate cuts. That is obviously completely independent of the CEO of the bank. They tend to move when there's crises in some of the main markets which they are exposed to. Many of these banks would have seen heavy falls in their share prices in the last few weeks because of the UK's decision to leave the EU. That isn't something which their CEO had any control over beyond the fact that you could, I guess, try to have your bank better organised should you need to move operations. But really, the reason that we've looked at it in terms of earnings rather than in terms of share prices, because earnings are more within the gift of the bank CEOs to actually control.
1: Now, you talked about this being a survey of the 20 best paid international bankers. Is there any division you've noticed between, let's say, the Europeans and the Americans?
2: Well, the biggest division we see every year between the Europeans and the Americans, certainly every year in the last five or six years, is that the Americans are paid more, way more. So in the case of the five US bank CEOs, in the mix, we see that their pay averaged $20.7 million. In the case of the Europeans, their pay averaged ten point four. So there's certainly a significant gap. We also, for the most part, saw bigger gains in percentage terms for the U.S. bankers. So three of the large U.S. banks awarded pay rises of more than 20% to their CEOs. In the U.K. and in the European context, where we saw the biggest pay rises, it was actually because of the one-off factors. Three of the European banks gave exceptional one-off share awards and other awards to their new incoming CEOs. That accounted for about £27 million. that was across Barclays, Standard Chartered and also Credit Suisse. So that helped push up the CEOs of both Standard Chartered and Credit Suisse into the top five best paid bank CEOs when those spots are actually usually all occupied by the US. And we don't expect Bill Winters and Tijan Tam, that's the CEOs of Standard Chartered and Credit Suisse, to actually stay there. We think that they're only there because they were put in by these exceptional one-off payments which were granted to them last year.
1: So, Bill Winters, I see in your chart at Standard Chartered, came in at number three in a snapshot of last year, getting a total of how much was it?
2: Bill Winters, a total of $22.4 million US. We also converted all these into US dollars to make them comparable across the lot.
1: And Jamie Dimon is top of the list overall, head of JP Morgan, with a package of?
2: 27.6 million. And Jamie has been consistently top of the list for the last few years. He is a very well paid banker.
1: And very proud of it, too. And I suppose his bank is in pretty good shape. So he would argue that he deserves it. Very good. Thank you for that, Laura. Let's move on to our second topic, which is the latest news in efforts to get more women into finance and particularly into senior positions within that. We had on Monday a announcement by the UK Treasury that they had secured 72 signatories to the Women in Finance Charter, which is aiming to get companies to agree to set targets for women at senior levels, to monitor their progress, to incentivize executives with bonuses that are pegged on achieving those targets. And as I say, there were a lot of signatories, many from the insurance sector, not so many from the banking sector, certainly not the international banks. Four out of five of the US big international banks didn't sign. Morgan Stanley was the exception. There may be more to come through, but we had a broad range of signatories. I talked to Harriet Baldwin, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, about the whole topic. And I started off by asking her really why it was important to get more women in finance at a senior level.
3: Because financial services is the UK's highest paid sector. And as you know, the Prime Minister is very keen to see narrowing of the gender pay gap. And the whole government has signed up to that and it's the one with the biggest pay gap. So, for every pound that a man is paid in financial services, a woman earns 60 pence. So, you've got such an important sector where we're a clear global leader, where you've got the highest paid people and you've got the widest pay gap. And so, therefore, if you can get traction in financial services, you're going to get traction at the whole country pay gap level. And... The OECD have estimated that if the UK were able to use the men and women in the workforce equally, that our GDP would be 10% larger. So there's a real gain for us as a country if we can have traction in this area.
1: I went on to ask her whether this initiative will work.
3: One of the metrics that I certainly will be looking at for the overall financial services sector is the senior managers regime, actually. Because I think at this point in time, only 16% of people who've been designated as senior managers are women. And so that's actually quite a good metric, I think, because it is the people in the firms who have been given the kind of roles that they feel they need to set out to the regulator, that that's an important control function. So
1: Obviously, that's going to give an annual review of mm. progress. Mm. When you're looking at it, what are the measures of success that you will focus most closely on?
3: Well, uh, the senior managers would be so that would a lot percentage for me, uh, edging up. I think this is complementary to the work that sort of Philip Hampton and the 30% Club are doing in terms of women on boards, but this is more looking at the more of the executive pipeline and the annual evaluation will obviously be part of measuring that progress. And I think that one of the other measures of progress will be the reported gender pay gap over time. But these things do change quite slowly and it's a really tough job and you know, what the Women in Finance Charter is, is an extra tool to help boards do that job because, you know, I wouldn't want to suggest for a second that firms haven't for a long time been wanting to make progress in this area. So what we're trying to give them is an extra tool that will help them make progress and compare best practice.
1: Finally, I asked whether it's helpful that now we have an incoming prime minister who's a woman in Theresa May, whether that's really setting the standard for the financial services sector.
3: What's happened in the Conservative Party under David Cameron is in a way analogous, because what he started to do is through a voluntary approach, and you know this is a voluntary approach, but in a very systematic way, and by giving it a lot of focus at the Conservative Party board level has enabled the Conservative Party women in Parliament to quadruple over his time as a leader of the Conservative Party. And so when you do something like that and you suddenly get to a process where you're developing a shortlist for the top job, it obviously makes it much more likely that you'll get an outcome where at least one of them will be a woman. And so I do think there is uh, something of an analogy to that. In other words, using a voluntary approach, not legislating, but creating an atmosphere where there is always a focus on it and specific actions that you know, the party's taking to measure progress against it. And I do think, therefore, that you can link those two things.
1: Laura, can I just bring you in for a final thought on this? As I said at the start, probably some disappointment that some of the biggest banks in the UK, foreign banks, the big employers in the city, the likes of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup haven't signed. Is that surprising to you?
2: It's somewhat surprising because, I mean, all of those banks, which you name, they're all always trying to convince us that they're very active on the diversity agenda, that they are very keen to see a diverse group of employees. And we're talking about all kinds of diversity. So not just in terms of the gender balance, but also in terms of race, ethnicity, culture. The only thing I would say is that these banks do tend to be against anything, which is going to box them in and restrict them from making their own decisions on things. I can see why they would object to having anything which is going to make it harder for them to put the right person in the right job. So there are some banks where they think that if they have to fill 10 seats on one of their main management boards, and if the 10 best people for those jobs do all happen to be male, they think that they ought to have the right to make it a pure system where they're able to appoint the person who is best, independent of what gender, ethnicity or anything else that that person is.
1: Well, I think certainly that's a point that's been made both off the record and officially by some of those institutions. Although Morgan Stanley is pretty pleased with itself that it's managed to sign up. And I think we're probably going to see Bank of America follow suit by the end of the year, um, possibly one or two of the others. One final thought, Laura, it should be said that of your 20 best paid CEOs in banking, none of them are women. Is that a reflection you think of the seniority bias right across the industry?
2: I think, sadly, yes, it is, particularly in the UK and in the European context of the bankers I meet, and they will be investment bankers, but we're talking about them being like 95% male. In New York, it is a little bit better. You might get to like 70% male, but still, it is an overwhelmingly male industry.
1: Okay. On that note, let's go to the US, where our US banking editor Ben McClanahan has been talking to Nathan Stovall
0: from Standard & Poor's. I'm joined today via Skype. By Nathan Stovall, who is New York bureau chief and a senior editor at S&P Global Market Intelligence, which is the data, research, and analytics arm of Standard and Poor's. We're here to talk about second-quarter earnings for the big U.S. banks, which begin on Thursday with J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, lots of the analysts at the investment banks have been pumping out preview notes as they always do, but none of them has been able to use a word more exciting than stable or solid or decent. Why not, Nathan? What's the big problem here? Does it come down as it normally does to interest rates?
4: I think definitely the lower for longer environment that we're all sort of now accepting is here. It plays a big role in that. I mean, if you go back a couple of years, we would have thought for sure the Fed would have lifted off. You would have had some steeping in the yield curve. And we did have the brief hike in mid-December, but you've seen just the opposite. You've actually seen a flatter curve environment. And so what you've now had is not only the sell side, but the operators themselves have to really get comfortable with the idea or come to terms with the idea that they're not really going to get much of a bailout from rates or much of a lift from rates Mm -hmm. and a more normalized rate environment anytime soon. And we certainly haven't seen explosive economic growth and the tailwind of reduced credit costs and just reserve releases pretty much ended last year. So what you're left with is a pretty tough environment and not a lot to get really, really excited about when you just talk about the group broadly. And it seems uh, for
0: for the second quarter that there is a little bit of excitement about mortgage originations because long-term rates, as you say, have dropped so far so quickly. There is some activity in 30-year mortgages. Are there any other bright spots besides that?
4: I mean, the credit probably gets a little bit better. You know, We haven't seen it fully turn yet, but Loan growth for the biggest banks has been more positive than it had been in in recent years. So you might see a a little bit improvement there. but, But I wouldn't say that you really saw a lot of really good news in second quarter outside of really specific names or specific stories where somebody has found a way to really stand out and really beat competitors.
0: Which are the banks that are standing out and beating competitors?
4: Earlier this week, we had Bank of the Ozarks report record results. They're continuing on the path of of closing two acquisitions and are targeting to be at $20 billion in assets uh, by year-end. Bank
0: Bank of the Ozarks had the short seller, Carson Block, in the stock. So he's been squeezed, has he?
4: Well, he got a little squeezed today, and he came in 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 early May, and it was somewhat reminiscent of the crisis. Ozarks has been a heavy real estate lender for some time, and the short seller came out and said, these guys have tremendous exposure and they're going to get in big trouble. And the stock has underperformed the bank index since then. But the CEO, Chairman and CEO, George Gleason, who's a large owner in the bank itself, you know, has maintained that they do things differently. They have a group called the Real Estate Specialties Group that underwrites loans, that compete with the big credit funds, and they're quite different than your average community bank. And they're really, their organic growth is, is off the charts and has been really strong as they've been on the acquisition path. So, You have stories like that where you come out and you see guys putting up really growth numbers. But if you're doing sort of basic blocking and tackling banking, and if it is, if sort of your success is dependent on the economy, we really haven't seen a lot of good news there.
0: So that's the case for Bank of America, for Citigroup and the big investment bank?
4: I think so. I mean, you know, there's that old line, uh, America goes the way a GM or something like that, or maybe it was Ford, but I'd say same true for B of A now. You know, they're very much... Levered to the U.S. economy and sort of the big investment banks, big investment banks. You know, M and A's was really strong in years past, and we had some cooling down this year. And there's really been volatility in the markets too. And heightened trading activity is good for them, but while volatility is not really good for them. And certainly, whether it's concerns about commodity prices early this year and a slowdown in China, or more recently, of course, Brexit. You know, the markets have been sort of all over the place, and that's not a great environment for them.
0: You guys put up a very interesting piece of research a couple of weeks ago. At least I read your story based off it. Talking about the comparison with, um, well, we keep hearing about utility-like returns. And you guys have demonstrated that the returns from the U.S. banking industry are now much more utility-like. You, you compared the 10 biggest banks versus the 10 biggest utilities by customers. And you found that the median return on average equity fell to 8.24% at the end of the first quarter from 21.35% at the, at the year in 2006 uh, for the big banks. And over the same time, the utilities median ROE dropped from thirteen point three four percent to nine percent. So they're roughly in the same ballpark now. But what does that mean for bank executives that they're still shooting for much higher ROEs? Is that unrealistic?
4: It may be if nothing changes. Right. If if we remain in a slow growth world and a lower rate world, it seems like it's going to be pretty hard for them to to change, particularly if capital requirements stay where they are. And you hear things bouncing around on, on there and whether or not smaller banks will get relief. But we also hear, you know, bigger guys being talked about facing even higher capital requirements. And, you know, the equity is the capital. So if capital goes up, that ROE is just going to go down. So it seems like they're very challenged. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to point out there is that, you know, being a utility is not a good thing for these guys because they're not as stable. They do have cycles. They don't pay as consistent of returns. And they don't have monopolies. So I mean the thing about a utility is you know you're going to get your money because it's kind of guaranteed in a way, in a sense, and it certainly isn't in the banking industry. And so if it stays this way, I think one of the reasons why executives are targeting that, they need to be able to do that because there's a risk of losing their investor base over time.
0: But if they are fighting against that, are they fighting against the Fed, the most powerful U.S. bank regulator, which does want the banks to act and behave more like utilities?
4: They could be. They absolutely could be. But I think, I, you know, you could argue that they're really fighting for relevance in the sense. I mean, you know, maybe they do get it and say, I need to earn my cost of capital. That's my job. I work for shareholders and this isn't enough. So I got to find a way to do it. You know, I think some of the regulators get that too, that they know that they need to offer a return. They don't necessarily need to go back to 22%, you know, ROE, but they need to offer some level of return. The question is, you know, sort of where do they fall? Some of them might even fall and say, well, if they can't do it, then maybe they'll be forced to break up. Some of them seem like they might be okay with that, right? Because they just want to, reduce risk in the system. And some of the politicians would be okay with that too, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, there, there's certainly a, a belief that, you know, larger and bigger concentrations creates more risk. And, you know, whether or not that's 100% accurate or not, certainly if one of these guys got in really big trouble, that would create a, a big problem. You know, one of the other issues, though, is how would you reduce them if Bank of America was, you know, one-eighth the size it is today, it'd still be a SIFI. Or it'd still be a G-Zip, so because they're so big. That's 250 plus, right? That's right, 250 plus, And they're $2 trillion in, in change or something like that. So it's kind of hard to see how they would get really, really small. But I think the CEOs get that they need to earn the right to sort of exist in their current form. And you need to earn your cost of capital. And so that, that's why they're focused on that.
0: So does that mean that the focus for this quarter will be what, in the absence of strong revenue growth, it's cost cuts?
4: Probably, and that's been the story, right? And a lot of it was, you know, reduced credit costs. So we're going to get credit better, and then it's been back to a cost-cutting story. And I just think so. I mean, there's not many levers they can pull on the revenue side. They don't have a lot of tailwind. So get lean, get really, really lean, seems like the way to do it. And B of A has. A big cost-cutting program they've had out for years, and it's been finished, Project New BAC. But now they're talking about reconfiguring their branch network. They've sold off hundreds of branches over the years, and they're continuing to look at that. And that might not be the best example, but I think you see all these guys sort of rethink everything that they're doing, because they have to. Great. Thanks very much, Nathan. Good to talk to you.
1: Nice talking to you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Ben and Nathan in the US, Laura and Harriet Baldwin here, and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Key. Until next week, goodbye.